We are continuing our sermon series, The Seven Letters to the Seven Churches of Asia Minor, or Western Turkey. Today we are in the second of those letters to the church in Smyrna. Verse 9. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the Alpha and Omega, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So if you try, pull out a map later today and look on it for the city of Smyrna, you're you're not going to find anything but you will find I-Z-M-I-R, Izmir, which is on the western coast of Turkey, a city of approximately 4 million people, nestled right up on the bluish green waters of the Aegean Sea. If you pull it up on Wikipedia, you'll see a, a beautiful panoramic shot of the harbor of Izmir. Izmir came in the news a few uh, months back, this past June, Developers were in the process of building, it was either a shopping center or some type of commercial building, when during their excavations, they came across a Roman-era amphitheater that they speculate could seat about 16,000 people. And they believe that it, it was in that very stadium, that very amphitheater, in which probably the most famous martyr in the first, uh, second century of the church, the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, was martyred. They they found his stadium. And I thought, when I read that piece of news, I thought, man, that's cool. They found found Polycarp's stadium. And then I thought, another part of me said, that's not so, that's kind of terrible, isn't it? it? It would be like, imagine you're at your grandparents' farm and you unearth a time capsule you open up the time capsule, and inside of it is a, is a musket ball. And they know that that musket ball was the very one used, or, or, or the very one that killed your ancestor in the Revolutionary War. And you're holding that piece of lead in your hand, and how do you feel? You feel conflicted. It was the site of our, our brother's death. Well, Polycarp, we'll talk more about him in a few minutes, died in the year 155 AD. The the letter that Jesus writes to this church here in Revelation was probably composed sometime in the mid-90s. And you'll notice, or maybe you noticed when I read it, that they're not at the point of suffering martyrdom yet. They are... The persecution that they faced was kind of the lower level version of persecution. 
Your faith is going to keep you from enjoying a better job. People are going to speak badly about you. You're going to be stigmatized. People might steal your property. You might even be sent to jail, but you're not, you're not at the point of, of dying for your faith. And yet, I think that's the reason it was all the more difficult to hold out, so to speak. I mean, if you have somebody who has a gun to your head and says, recant your faith or else, I mean, that's pretty quick and painless. But when you have something so subtle, when you have a little voice in your ear whispering, make this small compromise, it's, it's a lot harder to, to live with, with conviction for Jesus Christ there. So let me give you an idea of what our brothers and sisters in the city of Smyrna were facing. Let's say, for instance, that you have come to that point in your life where you're choosing your vocation. Your, your great dream is to be a farrier, someone who shoes horses. Well, the only problem is that all of your trades in the city are, are run by trade guilds, and all of your trade guilds have certain expectations. So let's say the Farrier's Guild is under the patron saint uh, horse god in the Roman pantheon. And once a year, all of the men of the guild and their families get together for the, the Christmas party, so to speak, the horse god party. And there's a great feast held in his honor. And if, if you're going to be part of the guild, the expectation is that, that you participate. It's only once a year. Come on. Maybe you have to take a few oaths in that God's name. Do you, do you compromise? Do you jeopardize your entire economic future for a few scruples? And it's not just your life. It's the life of your young fiancé. It's your kids. I mean, do you intentionally limit your your future and future economic opportunities just because of Jesus? <laughs> and you know, they, we've talked about how the expectation was you'd burn a little bit of incense and you would mutter under your breath, Caesar is God. And I mean, nobody believed that he was really God. It was just a formality. Do you, but do you jeopardize your entire future uh, for the sake of a scruple over a mere formality. Like, why would you do that? The only reason you would do that is if you were utterly convinced in your heart that Jesus was real. And he was Lord. And he doesn't accept compromises, even small ones. And he, he accepts no rivals. The only way that you would stand is with a deep-seated conviction that the words of Jesus in this letter are, are true. What does he say to them? Verse 9. I, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You say, wow, I didn't know Jesus talked like that. A synagogue of Satan. What is he? Probably. So in, the, in that day, there were legal and Ill, illegal religions. Judaism would have been on the legal list. 
They made allowances for the Jews. The Jews could burn incense to Caesar as emperor, but not Caesar as God. Uh, Christians weren't allowed that privilege. And so most likely what's happening in the city of Smyrna is the Jews are going to the Roman officials and saying, hey, you know, we've got these guys over here. They're illegal. They're a cult. They're a sect. You ought to arrest them. And Jesus says, your father is your father is the devil. Uh, did you know that the biblical Jesus had such a sharp tongue? And it's not just in the book of Revelation. If you go to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus looks squarely in the eyes of his fellow Jews and says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you carry out your father's desires. So Jesus says, I know, I know I know what you're up against. What does he not say? Did you notice that he does not say to this church, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're having to go through this. Uh, here, let me write to you a, a letter of condolence. I'm, I'm, really bo- I'm really sorry that you're having to suffer. No, he doesn't. He, he, this Jesus, he is a... He is, he's Lord. He's not therapist. He doesn't coddle them. He says, I know what you're going through, and I'm telling you to persevere and press through it, and I promise you that if you do this, you will inherit a, a crown of life that will never fade or, or go away. I, just, I was struck by that. The, the Jesus is not apologetic for the sufferings that his followers have to endure. What he does say is, do not fear. Uh, Do not fear. That's the most frequently cited command in all of the Bible. Do not fear. And somebody, I came across this this week, somebody, uh, very insightful comment. They said, do you realize how fear turns us into false prophets? Fear, with fear, we look into the future And we imagine the worst case scenario of what's going to happen to us, which might take place. This this week I realized, I was feeling just anxious about small stuff. I mean, something as small as sending an email off to a person and not getting a reply. And immediately my mind goes to the worst case scenario. What are they thinking? Were were they offended by this? And no, Fear turns you into a false prophet. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. All you know is that he who is the Alpha and the, and the Omega is the one who's going to bring it. And that's why he can say, do not fear. Do not fear. Let's fast forward to today. How big of an issue is persecution of Christians on a global scale? Uh, that's a good question. And I think that the answer to that question is it depends on whose numbers you believe. So I'm going to give you two different sets of statistics which paint two fairly different pictures of persecution on a global scale. Uh, here's the first set of numbers. 36 billion people have lived on the face of the earth since the days of Jesus in 33 AD to the year 2000. These are a little dated, but 36 billion people. Of those 36 billion, 12 billion of them have been evangelized. And of those 12 billion, 8 billion 
have been professing Christians. And of that 8 billion, a little less than 1% or 70 million have been martyred for their faith. 45 of those 70 million who were martyred for their faith have been martyred in the 20th century. And and the same uh, guys who give these statistics, and I can, I think it, I got this, uh, what was it, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary had, had this online. I could do a better citation later. But of those uh, 70 or 45 million in the 20th century, they, they work it out to about today, about 100,000 to 150,000 Christians annually are martyred for their faith, which is an incredible number if you think about it. But then I came across another set of numbers, a much more conservative set through, and you may want to look them up on the web, opendoorsusa.org, opendoorsusa. And they only count numbers that can be empirically verified. And they said that in 2014, only 4,400 Christians were killed, quote, for faith-related reasons. 4,400. Which was double the 2,100 that were killed in 2013 and more than triple the 1,200 that were, that were killed the year before that. The largest number of Christian martyrs in 2014 could be found in Nigeria. 1,000, I'm sorry, 2,400 were killed in Nigeria. The next deadliest country in the world was the Central African Republic. Uh, 1,100 deaths there. Syria, Kenya, and North Korea rounded out the top five. And I say only 4,000. I mean, the death of one, even one of our brothers and sisters for the sake of Christ should, should trouble us, shouldn't it? But we get two way different pictures, don't we? From 100,000 to 4,000. It's like, whose numbers do you believe? Why the discrepancy? Well, I suspect that part of it owes to the fact that they're, they're using different definitions of what constitutes a Christian martyr. I suspect that part of it lies in the fact that I think we as American Christians and, and Western in the Western world, get fed pretty sensational numbers and sensational stories in order to, you know, to, to beat the drum, so to speak. Um, I, I hope I'm wrong on that. I hope, uh, I hope we aren't being fed lies, but, but I think that actually the smaller numbers are more powerful. And here's why. When I tell you that the United States debt, the national debt, is $17 trillion today. What happens in your mind? You just shut down. Like our, our calculators, our mental calculators, they don't, they don't work those kinds of numbers. When I tell you that 70 million Christians have been martyred for their faith, or in the last 100 years, 45 million Christians, or even 150,000 Christians annually are martyred for, for their faith, I think what ends up happening to us is, is the computer screen just goes blank. But there's something even more powerful with, with the, the tangibility 
of 4,400, 2,000 of which were massacred in Boko, uh, by Boko Haram. Um, uh, now, I realize those numbers don't reflect the number of Christians who are in prison in the world today. Hebrews 13.3, remember those who are in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. So the numbers don't count for that. The numbers also don't count for uh, those who are uh, economically disadvantaged for the sake of their faith. But 4,400 in 2014. I really do encourage you, if it's not part of your, your regular activity, to follow the persecution of the global church. Get on to opendoorsusa.org and what you'll discover is not that there's entire villages being annihilated every day, but there are individuals who are single or, or a small number of individuals who are killed every day and you can find their names there. You can find that, that like three days ago in Mombasa, Kenya, a gunman came into the church service that morning and killed the pastor of the Mitma Maxim Revival Church. And, and I find that that helps me to pray. I was even talking to somebody after the first service. Being able to go to God with something specific, with the name of that pastor, the name of the church, the, thinking of the, the name of his family members, it's not us like taking a big wad of dirty clothes and throwing it into the washing machine, but you take a single soiled sock and you put it there and say, God, please clean this. For me, there's something very powerful about the specificity. So that's, I guess, point number one. Number two, I guess this is another sort of persecution myth, maybe, but I think that we in the Western church have a tendency to romanticize persecution. You may have heard before, I know that I heard this in seminary, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Has anybody ever heard that phrase before? The blood of the martyrs is the seed, seed of the church. Well, actually, the latest research indicates that that's not entirely true. When, when the missiologists pour over the data, they, they determine that church growth is not strongly correlated with intense persecution. I guarantee you, if you and I were to make our way into Iraq today or to Syria today, we would not find the church blossoming and growing there. We'd find the church fleeing for its life. When you make your way into northern Nigeria, uh, no, the church is not flourishing there. Now, the, the data does indicate that when there are um, governmental restrictions in place and when there are actual disadvantages to being Christians in a society in place, then the church in that environment does tend to, to, go, uh, to grow more strongly, but not in places where the persecution is, is especially fierce. Um, you know, I think we have to be very wary of of romanticizing persecution. I've, uh, I've heard people in the American church before say, what we really need today is for a little bit of persecution in America. Give us just a little bit. Of, and by that, they, want, they mean that they want the church to be purified and they want spiritual revival to take place 
in the, in the land. But for me, that's much too glib. Um, persecution is not a great thing. No, we ought to pray that regions of the world will become more stabilized. We ought to pray against the radical Islamization of Saharan Africa. We ought to pray for social stability in those places. We ought to pray 1 Timothy 2.1 that let prayers be made for all men, for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives full of godliness and holiness. We need to pray that our brothers and sisters would be able to lead peaceful, quiet lives. We also need to pray sympathetic of how difficult it must be for a Middle Eastern man to convert to Christianity. I came across another, a story this week of an of a American church group that was touring Western Turkey. And I'm presuming they were going through some of the famous sites there of early Christianity. So they went to Ephesus and they toured the ruins of Ephesus. And they came to Izmir, which, did I mention Izmir is, uh, modern day Izmir is ancient day Smyrna. So they come to Izmir. And their tour guide that they had was a gentleman who had spent about 10 years in the United States. So he spoke fluent English. He was here probably on a student visa. Uh, he was a Muslim. And they, uh, he started during this tour to begin to ask questions about, serious questions about faith and Christianity. So the pastor of this tour said, you know, perhaps you might not mind my asking, but if you were to die tonight and you, were, you stood before Allah, are you confident that Allah would, would uh, accept you? And he said, no, no. There are five things every Muslim must do, and I've only done two of them. So the pastor, since there's an opportunity here, he explained the gospel to this man. He explained to him how Jesus Christ has done all five of those, of those things and, and even more, how, how everything that God would require has been accomplished by Jesus. He explained how, how we know God would receive us because of the work of Jesus. And then the pastor said, before I go, I have to, I have to ask you this question. Would you like to place your faith, place your, your faith and commitment in Jesus? And the man said, the guide replied, you don't know what you're asking me to do. Do you know what would happen to me if I, if I became a Christian? My wife would leave me. My family would disown me. My boss would fire me. I might even want to go back to the United States, but it's not like the Turkish government is going to give me an exit visa. See, you Christians, you go back home tomorrow on the airplane, but me... I would stay here and I would starve to death in my own culture. You realize what we're asking them to do? And frankly, the only way somebody is going to be willing to bite that bullet uh, is, is for an incredible work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. To, to, to bring them to the point that they're willing to suffer that much for Christ. Well, what about here? What, I, the other idea that came to my mind this week is how much we are asking the younger Christians in our church, 
how much we are asking them to, to suffer for Jesus. Like, of course, I'm no, I'm no prophet. I don't know what religious life in America is going to look like 50 years from now. I, don't, I can't imagine that it, it'll ever, it'll be at least in that time frame bad enough that people are going to be martyred for their faith. I mean, do you think people are going to be martyred in the United States in 50 years? I, I doubt it. But, but what I can imagine, and it's not hard to imagine at all, is if you hold to the historic view of Christian sexuality, if you hold to the historic Christian view of the exclusivity of Jesus, if you hold to the historic Christian view on hell and, and judgment, you are going to have some very uncomfortable days ahead of you. You will be economically disadvantaged. You are going to lose some jobs. You might even be poor. People are going to disdain you and and speak badly of you. I I think it's especially important that those of you in our church who, let's say, you're, you're 50 and above, I mean, you guys are not going to experience the, the fallout of this. Nothing like what the 20-somethings and the teenagers and, and our kids are going to have to experience. We are, by asking them to, make, to be historically committed Christians, we are asking them not to be martyred for their faith, but we are asking them to be like the Christians at Smyrna, whom Jesus spoke to about their faith. And the only way that you are going to bite that bullet is with a very deep conviction that Jesus Christ is real and that the words he writes are the words he writes to you. I realized this week that when people persecute other people, they almost always do it out of a position of feeling intensely persecuted themselves. Think about that for a second. Usually people persecute out of their own martyr complex. You think about the Jews and the, in Germany in the 1940s. Well, the reason that the, one of the reasons the Germans were, were so brutal to them is, is because, of, because they, the Germans, felt among themselves that they had long been victims of the Jews. Persecutors almost always beat their breasts in rage because of the, of the terrible treatment they themselves have suffered from. And that's one of the reasons that they justify their behavior. It's, it's because they have been aggrieved and oppressed. It'll happen. About 50 years after the writing of this letter, Polycarp stood before the Roman governor, Statius Quadratus, and the Roman governor said to him, offer a pinch of incense before the emperor's statue or take some oath by the fortune of Caesar. Just say a few words. You don't even have to mean them. This is the paraphrased version. (laughs) You don't even have to mean them, and you can walk out a free man. Just prove yourself a good citizen of the city. About the same time, as either before or after, another Christian had been threatened to be thrown into the stadium 
and be consumed by the lions, eaten by the wild beasts. And once he saw how ferocious these animals were and how gory and terrible that was, he lost his nerve and recanted. But Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him and never did he do me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I am a Christian, but we shall have you consumed with fire unless you change your mind. And Polycarp replied, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched. But you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the unbelieving. What a speech. The governor then goes out to the stadium and announces, I think there's like a three-part announcement of he's a heretic, he's uh, confessed to be a Christian, and instead of throwing him to the lions, they burned him to death. Brothers and sisters, every one of us, every Christian, every true Christian, you will suffer for the sake of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said that it is through many afflictions that we must inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know what that will will mean or will be in your life. I only know that it will be. Um, Do you believe in Jesus enough to go through that? To not make the small concessions the pro formas, to not say what they want you to say. Every year on the anniversary of Polycarp's death, the Christians in the city of Smyrna would gather together. And I think they did this in the entire region, but they would gather together remembering the events and praying, and they called that day Polycarp's birthday. <laughs> are, are you prepared to have a birthday? Whoever has ears, ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Be faithful, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Thus says our Lord. Amen.